Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome those of you who are worshiping with us in the sanctuary, as well as those of you who are worshiping, worshiping with us online. If you've been around City for the past several weeks, you know we're in the middle of a sermon series that's entitled Going Vertical. It's the idea of worship and what does the Bible have to say about worship. Now, this is the last Sunday for the worship series, and next Sunday we begin our Christmas series that's entitled Incarnation. Incarnation. We're going to take several week look at what it looks like for God to become flesh and to dwell among us. Now, this morning's sermon title is Worship, Personal Pastoral Thoughts. That's kind of the title of it. And um, if you've been around City for a while, you know that I don't often preach a sermon this way. So this morning, I'm going to talk more about some of the thoughts that I have personally about worship. I'm going to talk about some of the things that I believe about worship, and um, as I was sharing with my son, as I was talking about this sermon with him, I said it's going to be a little bit more paternal, maybe, than some of the sermons I preach, to which he responded, you know, Dad, I think you're finally old enough to where you can preach a paternal-feeling sermon. And Peter, I don't know if that was a compliment I just don't know how to field that comment, but he said, you're old enough to where I think you can now pull that off. So what I want to talk about is kind of my pastoral thoughts, my personal thoughts on worship. Now, what I want to be clear about, though, is that these thoughts are not something I've derived from myself. This is what I've learned about worship from Jesus in the Scriptures, but when I think about worship, these are the things that kind of govern or guide or inform worship for me personally. And so again, this sermon's going to be a little bit more conversational than most. But again, my prayer is and my trust is that you will learn something that you could absorb into your own understanding of worship. As I think about worship, one of the first things that always grips me from the life of Jesus and from Jesus' teaching begins with what he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, maybe you've never read the Bible. You've never looked at the scriptures. You've never read the Newer Testament. But if you have, you would discover that in Matthew, the first gospel in the Newer Testament, when you hit chapter five, if you have a red letter Bible, you'll see a ton of red letters. It's the longest teaching Jesus gives. And what he does is he is casting a vision for the new kingdom of which he's the king. Now, as part of this, though, Jesus does it, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Luke, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. No doubt Jesus gave the sermon more than once. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses worship. And what he says is radical for the people of his day. We find this reading in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Here's what the text says. Therefore, 
If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. I don't think we can fathom how revolutionary that was for the time of Jesus. Jesus is announcing basically this, that our horizontal relational world with people is not ignored by God when we step into the vertical world of worship. This would have been stunning for the Jews of his day to think that Jesus would say that when you step before God, God might convict you by his spirit and say, before you come to me and offer your gift, which, oh, by the way, offering a gift in ancient Israel in the temple was the highest form of worship. Before you come and offer the gift, even if you've made a three-day journey, four-day journey, and you've come all the way to Jerusalem and you're ready to offer your gift as you walk towards that altar to lay it down, suddenly you realize and the Spirit convicts you that there's a broken relationship in your life. Jesus says, lay that down, the gift, and go and make it right. And then come back and worship. Jesus stunningly elevates human relational realities even in the context of worship in our lives. As I was thinking about this whole idea of making relationships right, we go to worship God, suddenly we feel the conviction of God about a relationship in our lives. I was drawn to something that I observed on television this week. So I was watching this show that involved Jacqueline Kennedy and Queen Elizabeth. And in this show, what happens is Jacqueline Kennedy and Queen Elizabeth have a meeting, they have a gathering, they get together as President Kennedy was newly elected president and they got together. And after that meeting, Jacqueline Kennedy wasn't in her right mind and she made some very derogatory observations about the queen. Well, they ended up getting back to Queen Elizabeth. This is a true story in that sense. And they got back to Queen Elizabeth, and she, of course, was highly offended. Well, what Jacqueline Kennedy did was very fascinating to me. What she did was she reached out to the queen and asked for a private meeting with her. And when she went into that meeting, she came in very humbly, and she said to the queen, she said, I am here to apologize. And you can only imagine what the queen did. She said, oh, you don't have to, don't worry about that, made a few other comments. But Jacqueline Kennedy persisted, and this is where I learned something. She said, I'm here to apologize, but I need you to know, Queen, that I'm not here to bring an excuse, but if you will allow me, I would like to make an explanation for why it happened. There's a huge difference between an excuse and an explanation. And so what she did was she explained what was going on in her life. And at the end of that conversation, she came with an apology. She said, I'm not here to make an excuse, but if you will let me, I would like to make an explanation. And when she was done, their relationship was on the mend. Now, fascinatingly enough, 
I had the same experience here at City this week. I had that we have quite a few people here at City Church that worship with us, and the ministries they lead are not under the umbrella of City Church. They're wonderful leaders, and really, they just worship with us here. We're their church family. And in the course of a, a public meeting, one of the ministry leaders here at City um, had made some references in a meeting. I responded, and in the midst of that, things went sideways. And this week, this individual called me out of the clear blue. And they essentially said this, listen, I've been doing some house cleaning. I love the way they put it. I've been doing a little spiritual inventory. I've been doing some house cleaning. And that interaction is of concern to me. Can we talk? I said, sure. And they apologized. I apologized. We both asked for forgiveness. And then they went into a clear explanation of where they were at and why that interaction happened. By the time we were done, they were talking about their ministry. They were updating me on what they're involved with. I was doing the same. But I was thinking about when I was writing this sermon at the very first point, it dawned on me that their phone call to me no doubt removed an area of conviction that I would have had at the outset of worship today. Their obedience to the Spirit of God, making a relationship right in their world, no doubt freed me up. Because if you believe what Jesus said is true, there will be times where you will step into worship, and as you do, you will sense the conviction of God saying there's a relationship in your life that needs to be made right, and how radical that is when it comes to worship. The next thought that I have that's very practical, very pastoral, with my son's permission, very paternal, it's this. What is worship worth to you? What is worship worth I've mentioned this often, but I was raised on a farm. And being raised on the farm, we were always trying to find ways to make more money. So we actually raised raspberries and sold them to the local grocery stores. It's one of the things we did. And if you've ever been in Wisconsin, you would know that the raspberries there are about the size of a quarter. The earth there is very dark and fertile. And I just think Jesus got it right when he created raspberries. That's my humble opinion. Brussels sprouts, not so much, but raspberries, amen. But we would sell them to the grocery stores. And I remember one time saying to my mom, hey, listen, let's up what we charge. Let's charge the grocery store five times what they've been paying. And here's what she said, and many of you have heard this before. Maybe it was my dad that said it to me, but here's what they said. Something is worth what someone's willing to pay for it and not a penny more. That's what it's worth. I was like, huh, interesting. So the raspberries aren't worth five times what we've been, they're worth what they are because that's what the grocery stores are willing to pay. Now what's shocking in the scriptures, keeping that valuation in mind, how much worship is worth to the enemy of our soul, it's stunning. 
Because when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, we discover in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, as the devil tempts Jesus, the text tells us that the devil led him, meaning Jesus, up to a high place and showed him in a millisecond, in an instant, all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, meaning Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. Verse 7, if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But I want you to notice what the adversary of our soul was willing to pay for worship. He was willing to cash in everything he had. Now, the raw truth is he's also a liar. So there was probably some underhanded move he was hoping to make. But suffice it to say that the enemy of our soul takes Jesus and shows all the kingdoms of the world from Adam to the end of time shows all the kingdoms and all their splendor and all their authority and says to Jesus, all you need to do is bend your knee and worship me and it's all yours. I'll hand it over. Think about how much the adversary of our soul was willing to pay for worship. Worship is worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And the enemy of our soul knew the value of worship he didn't come up with the value. He saw how valuable it is to God. And when he saw the value that God places on worship, he determined, I'm willing to cash it all in. And if you would remember in the scriptures, the adversary of our soul led the worship of the morning. He knew the value of worship to God. And he was willing to pay everything he had authority over just to get Jesus to worship him. What is worship worth to you and to me? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, when we talk about what's worship worth, I want to suggest something to you that may seem a little bit off topic, but I think it's germane to the value of worship, and it's this. Ask God to help you view your work as worship. Whatever it is, whether you're in school, you're a student, and you're studying, whether you're a homemaker, whether you're raising kids, whether, whatever it is, whatever your work is, I want to challenge you. Go to God and say, God, how can my work become worship? And what you'll discern and you'll discover is that suddenly the value of worship in your life will grow. I've watched people over the years who have begun to move into this discipline where they began to say, I'm going to view my work as worship to God and how transformational that is for the corporate worship or the individual worship when they stand before the Lord. The next thought that I have is quite simple, but I hope that you'll capture this. Usually we say praise and worship. 
That's accurate. But this morning I want to say grace in worship. What do I mean by this? Grace and worship. Well, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus brings a parable. It involves a Pharisee who's a religious leader and a tax collector who is a Jew who has betrayed Israel because they are taking money from Jews and giving it to the Roman Empire. They're a total turncoat on the Jewish faith and the Jewish nation. Now let's listen to the parable. Luke 18, 9 through 14. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast. By the way, in the Middle, in the Middle East, that's the sign of horrific grief. He is pounding on his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Please know this. It is only by God's grace, his unmerited favor, that we can come into God's presence to worship him. Why is this so important? Well, it's important for many reasons, but here's one of the primary ones. I can safely assume, because of the number of people that have been worshiping in our services, that there have been people here this morning that when you stepped in, Stephen and the worship team began to lead us in worship, the adversary of your soul showed up and said, you know what, I don't think you can worship because of where you've been, what you've done. And then maybe the person next to you goes to themselves, you know, I can worship Jesus this week. Because there's three things I normally do that I didn't do, and so now, man, I know <laughs> I can worship. Let me be clear. Both of you stand in God's grace, and there's no difference between the two. Your best Christian week ever does not position you more appropriately to worship God than your worst week ever. Does this make sense to us? You stand in worship because of God's grace. And he provides you his grace through Christ, and that allows you to step in to worship him. It's not about your best week or your worst week. It's about God's grace. So I know praise and worship is the phrase we use, but I would like for you to think about grace and worship. It's only by his grace that we can enter into worship. It's only by his grace. But I also want to remind us, though, if we step into worship and God convicts us about a relationship that is sideways, we commit immediately in his presence to make that right and to get that in the place where God wants it to be. Now for my last thought. My last personal pastoral kind of parental concept of worship is going to be a little bit difficult for some of us, 
but I'm praying that you'll follow through with me. And it's this, authentic worship. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that will be taken from a paragraph that I wrote in preparation for this sermon that I would like to read. Here's what I wrote. Countless times as a pastor, I have looked out over the congregation and seen the faces of people whom I know what they are going through and they have tears streaming down their cheeks. The person next to them and the uninformed would say those must be tears of joy, but they're not. For those of you who know, like I would, I know that those are tears of pain and loss and suffering and sorrow. I know that through that, this woman or this man has chosen out of nothing more than faith and humility to stand in God's presence and to worship. Their worship is not based on current victory or joy. They are worshiping out of nothing more than trust in God and that God keeps his promises and that on that day, all things will be made right and made new. Recently here at City Church, I've got a friend of mine and we've been meeting and he actually challenged me appropriately. And he said, you know, Pete, I've been at, he's been at City Church a long time. Um, his wife went to UVA. He went to Virginia Tech. We can forgive them of that. But he said something really fascinating I'd never thought of before. He said, you know, Pete, I've been at City Church a lot of time. And he said, every worship service is victorious. Every sermon you preach is victorious. Everything's victory. He said, the problem is, is if you sit in our services and you're not victorious, you feel like no one understands. You feel like you're the odd person out. And I would correlate it the following way. My wife runs a program here called Grief Share. And in Grief Share, what Franny does is she gathers people together who have recently lost a spouse or a child or a parent or a loved one, and they're in grief. And what they do is they gather together and there's a video series and they really what Fran does is help to facilitate people in their grief. More often than not, what people will say is, Fran, I was in the middle of grief, but no one around me seemed to understand. I always felt like I was on an island all to myself. And then I came into grief share and someone actually acknowledged my grief. They recognized my grief. And because of that, we've been able to grieve together and move towards health. So in worship, worship at City has always been victorious. Pastorally, it's just kind of like you got to lead towards victory. You don't want to get stuck in the mud of something else. But if you begin to read the Psalms, you discover very quickly that the Psalms, which is our tutorial on worship, doesn't function that way. As a matter of fact, Psalm 22.1, and when I read this psalm, you're going to recognize it just like that. Psalm 22.1, the heading says, for the director of music, to the tune of the doe of the morning, a psalm of David. 
I need to ask Stephen, what is the tune for the dole of the morning? No one knows. But here's the first line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how the psalm begins. Why does that sound familiar to you? That's what Jesus cried out on the cross. And if you read that psalm, you would discover it's a psalm of lament. It's a psalm that for the first 19 verses, the psalmist speaks about other stuff. And it's not till verse 19 where the psalmist finally says, God, don't be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly and help me. You see, that psalm is one where the psalmist steps in and authentically steps into worship and begins to verbalize their grief and their heaviness and their brokenness of heart. Could you imagine if Jesus on the cross had grabbed a psalm that was, oh, victory, victory. It would be nonsensical. It would be inauthentic. It wouldn't be real. Worship is to be an authentic time where we come to God as we are. And like Psalm 22, sometimes you're going to step into worship and the people around you might have hands raised or they just seem like they're in it and you'll be there kind of going, I'm just not there. I'm brokenhearted. All around me seems like there's victory, but in my life I'm struggling God, I feel like the winds of life are blowing against me. And what's awesome about God is we step into that and we begin there. But you'll notice by the end of Psalm 22, the psalmist speaks of the victory of God that will come and that the rescue of God will happen. <coughs> when we think about worship, I would encourage you that worship be authentic. God knows if you stand in his presence and your heart is broken, don't try to fake him out. Come authentically. Quote to him Psalm 22. Memorize it. Quote it to him. And allow yourself to authentically worship God. I'm going to ask as we put feet to your faith that you would stand with me. As we close out our time, very practically, I want to remind us again about worship. First, Jesus teaches us. Our human relationships inform worship. Be open to getting those right. Can you think about how amazing the church would be is if every time before we come to church for worship, everyone at city goes, okay, God, are there any relationships that are sideways? And before you exit your dorm room or your apartment or your house, you reach out and you make those right. Can you imagine the wave of peace and reconciliation that would ripple to our community? Next, what is worship worth to you? I'll be honest, Satan, the devil, did not pay the price he said he would. But Jesus did for worship. Jesus gave everything. Satan hinted at it, probably lied about it, 
but Jesus gave it all. Worship has a high value. Third, it is only by God's grace you can worship God. Your most righteous week paralleled to your most unrighteous week. There are no difference. We stand before God and worship because of grace. And then last but not least, let's be authentic in worship as we worship God. Let me pray as we close. God, thank you for who you are. And before we worship as a congregation now, Jesus, I ask that you would allow us to be women and men who are true worshipers. We worship you in spirit and in truth. Allow the truths that we have learned today to inform our worship. And may it be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name, amen. Let's worship together.